Hello, I'm Tristan Abbey, editor-at-large of the Elio Review of Books. This is the third episode of our new podcast. Last episode, we were joined by Paul Sen, author of Einstein's Fridge, How the Difference Between Hot and Cold Explains the Universe, published in 2021 by Scribner, an imprint of Simon & Schuster. Today, I am honored to welcome Robin Waterfield, author of The Making of a King, Antigonus Gonatas of Macedon and the Greeks, published in 2021 by the University of Chicago Press. He is also the editor of the brand new translation with commentary of The Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, published earlier this year by Basic Books. Robin, I am live from the lesser known Alexandria across the Atlantic in Virginia, and you may gather uh, uh, join us from Greece. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes, I live I live in the way south of Greece, pretty much uh, as far as you can get before getting wet. If I raise my head, I look out and I see the sea. It's very nice. It also must be nice to live in the same area as the people that you write about once lived. You know, it's a dream come true. What else could one want to be doing? It's brilliant. In your previous work, you examine what transpires following a critical event in the year 323 BC, the death of Alexander the Great in Babylon. In Dividing the Spoils, the War for Alexander the Great's Empire, you explore how the Macedonian Empire essentially collapsed uh, over the next few decades after his death. And in Taken at the Flood, the Roman conquest of Greece, you explore how the peoples of the Greco-Macedonian world uh, essentially became subsumed into the Roman Empire, or what became the Roman Empire. In this book, The Making of a King, you are focused, I would say, on a, at, a, at a micro level, uh, on a particular king, a particular person, Antigonus, who ruled Macedon from 276 to 239 BC, and that the events of this book take place, in some sense, in between dividing the spoils and taking at the flood and form what you call a kind of trilogy in your own introduction to the book. Is that about right? That is, that's exactly right, yes. I mean, historians of ancient Greece and ancient Rome are very much victims of the available evidence. And so if the Gonatas book appears to be more micro, that's because I'm having to work through a great deal of nitty-bitty evidence because there isn't, for the third century, there isn't, there's no surviving ancient historical narrative for that period at all. There are scraps here and there. There are later writers who look back on that period a bit. Then there's other forms of evidence like coins and inscriptional evidence and things like that. But there is no narrative. So one has to work through, take an anecdote from here, an inscription from there, and kind of put it all together. Whereas with the other two periods, in the later period, you've got Polybius and Livy as historians. And in the earlier period, you've got Diodorus of Sicily and others. So it's it, it's it's easier to write that. But yes, it is a trilogy. It wasn't intended. I fell in love with the Hellenistic period and, and wanted to write about it. But I didn't see myself tackling the third century because that really is quite a challenge. But then I wrote this general history of Greece called Creators, Conquerors and Citizens. And You know, my doing the research for that would have been made a lot easier if there had been such a book as I then went on to write. And so that was really my motivation for writing it. Plus, I think what I do is I try to illuminate and open up for the general reader stretches of ancient Greek history which aren't particularly well known. And the third century BC certainly falls into that category. Absolutely. Now, as we turn to the book itself, you divide it up into two different sections. 
Let's start with the first, which you term the Wilderness Years, which began in 319 BC, some four years after the death of Alexander, and go up until 276 BC. What are one or two key points that you think we should know about this first period, the Wilderness Years? Well, okay, let's make them key points that are directly relevant to Antigonus himself, Antigonus Gonatas, the king that I made the linchpin of the of the book. And so let's make it personal. He was his grandfather and his father. His grandfather was Antigonus Monophthalmus, Antigonus the One-Eyed, and his father was Demetrius Polyorchetes, Demetrius the Besieger of Cities, great resounding warlike names. Antigonus Gonatas was cut from a slightly different cloth, I think, but those were his ancestors. So the key events would be, first of all, his grandfather's and father's astonishing success. I mean, after the death of Alexander, which you mentioned in 323, they were the two who emerged, father and son, who emerged by 315, 310 as the most successful of Alexander's successors. And in fact, by the time they were defeated, they were bidding fair to take over the entirety of Alexander's empire. Antigonus and, and Demetrius would have become joint kings of the empire that Alexander carved out, but didn't really have a, a chance to confirm and settle before he died. So their astonishing success, and then their rapid downfall, all the other kings, as I say, when it looked as though Antigonus and Demetrius were going to were bidding fair to make themselves the new Alexander, all the other kings lined up against them and defeated them in 301 BC at the Battle of Ipsus in Phrygia, in what is now kind of central Turkey in Asia Minor. And that really was why I called that part of the book the, the wilderness years, because after they defeated Ipsus, Antigonus Gonatas by the I'm just going to call him Antigonus. There are other Antigonuses around. It's very, you know, awkward. Antigonus. <laughs> yeah, right. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, when they were defeated, it all fell apart. They were effectively, I mean, Antigonus Monophthalmus, Antigonus the one I died in the battle. Demetrius, Antigonus's father, fled. But effectively, they were now kings and princes without a realm. Demetrius had a few possessions here and there, and, and some of the important Greek cities, most important for storing his navy, navy and his troops in. But they didn't have a solid big chunk of territory like Macedon or Syria or Egypt, like the other kings. And so for all of his lesser youth, you know, from his late teens up to his 20s and 30s, Antigonus was without a realm, but he always felt, he was always convinced that he was going to get Macedon. That is clear reading between the lines of the evidence, and he worked very hard to do it, and he did it. So that would be, I think, the first episode I'd pick on, this this rise and fall of his father and grandfather. But I'd also mention, I think, the Lemian War. Uh, immediately after Alexander's death, the Athenians got together a coalition of Greeks to rebel, to rise up against Macedonian rule, because you'll remember that the Macedonian king had effectively been in charge of Greece since 338, since Philip II, the father of Alexander the Great, defeated the Greeks at the Battle of Chironea. So, as I say, immediately after Alexander's death, the Athenians got this coalition together and rose up in rebellion, in what we call the Lemian War. And I'm picking on that because that would have taught Antigonus that 
his control of the Greeks was not that secure. That there was always going to be, they were always looking for opportunities to develop enough strength to be able to stand up against their Macedonian overlords. So I think the Lemian War would have would have taught Antigonus a lesson which he then had to learn the hard way during his reign. Well, that takes us to the second section of the book called Kingship. Our Antigonus is now king. What are one or two characteristics or aspects of his reign that you think are important for us to know? Well, first of all, he was a reformer. He reformed Macedon. I won't go into details because they're complex and they're all laid out in my book anyway. But effectively what he did was, and I think this was a way of establishing himself on the throne, making himself popular, was he devolved some of the kingly authority, moved it further down the scale so that not just the barons of the kingdom, but even further down the scale, that the town councils, the city councils, the town officials would have more responsibility taking away some from the throne, from the king himself. So that was a very, very important thing he did. And I think this to me is one of the reasons he's he's a very important and forgotten king is, is that he brought Macedon up to date, made it a less kind of feudal organization. Another event I would pick on would be the Cremonidian War. So going back to what I was saying about the Lemian War immediately after Alexander's death, this was pretty much exactly the same situation. The Athenians and the Spartans and a whole bunch of Spartan allies allied themselves with Ptolemy, the king of Egypt. The Egyptian king and the Macedonian king were always at odds, basically throughout the entire third century. So this was an attempt to throw off the shackles of of Macedonian dominion, and it didn't work. Antigonus won the war very successfully in the end, but it was a long war. It was a six-year war, so, you know, it took him some time. So, as I say, you know, he'd have learned the lesson that the Greeks were restless, and yes, indeed, they were. And then, not long after the Cremonidian War, the, the worst thing happened with the Greek uprising, which was the... Achaeans, the Achaeans were forming themselves into an increasingly powerful confederacy by absorbing as many other towns as they could in the Peloponnese, that big lump at the bottom of Greece. And holding that was absolutely vital for Antigonus. Central Greece was more or less in the hands of the Aetolians, with whom he had an uneasy but not openly hostile relationship, at least not at that period. But southern Greece was where the Achaeans were gradually, gradually getting stronger. And it was vital for Antigonus to keep them down. And the best way to do that, the way all the Macedonian kings had for decades, was to have an extremely strong garrison in Corinth. I don't know whether you know Corinth, but it's overlooked by a massive rock, which we just call the Acro Corinth, the the height of Corinth, peak of Corinth, which was large enough to house a very a strong garrison of troops and were strong enough to be you know very easily fortified and and very hard to take by by military means and in fact when antigonus lost it it wasn't military means it was a trick it was more or less a sneak attack by aratus of sicky and the leader of the achaeans so that was you know the cremonidian war showed him that the greeks were capable of still capable of you know rising up against him and then the loss of corinth effectively put paid to his control of the greeks more or less altogether and that was towards the end of his reign corinth was recovered by the king after next in the 220s but the loss of corinth effectively yeah 
denied Antigonus control of the Greeks. He was now king of Macedon, but not really king of the Greeks anymore. So those three things, the Cremonidian War, the loss of Corinth, and his reform of Macedon are, I think, the sort of the highlights of his reign. And this would be the same Corinth that uh, St. Paul wrote his famous letters to. Exactly too, yeah. Now, I am by no means an expert in either the ancients or the classics, but I had never heard of Antigonus until your book. Is this because he is a lost king, because he comes from a lost period, from, say, the fall of Macedon up until the rise of Rome, or am I simply not reading the right books? <laughs> well, no, 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 you're quite right. I mean, this this is partly, I mean, yeah, when people think of ancient Greek history, they're, they're chiefly thinking of the classical period. They're thinking of Athens and Sparta and the Peloponnesian War and Athenian democracy and, and all of those sorts of things. Demosthenes, Pericles. And this was this sort of weird thing about the Western educational system was that for, for many decades, most scholars more or less thought that Greek history got boring after the death of Alexander the Great. And it wasn't taught in universities and it wasn't taught in schools and it wasn't much written about. Of course, there were always some scholars writing about it, always were, but there weren't many. And so it didn't kind of filter through into the popular consciousness that this was, I mean, to me, the most fascinating period of Greek history there is, but uh, unknown to most people. And Antigonus in particular, yes, but I mean, we touched on that because at the, at the beginning, by when I was saying that there were really no you know, reliable sources for the third century. So he's been overlooked simply because people don't know how to write about him because there's very little to say about him, or they thought there was until I wrote my book. Well, you've published two books this year. One, a new edition of The Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, and of course, The Making of a King, all about King Antigonus. Is there anything we can say that would draw some kind of linkage between the two? On the one hand, Marcus, the godfather of Stoicism, and then on the other... King Antigonus. No, there aren't, in my opinion, but people have tried, or I mean, I don't think they've tried to make direct comparisons between Antigonus and Marcus, but people have tried to call both of them philosopher kings. In my view, they're, they're wrong in both cases. Marcus was emperor of Rome, and he was a, a practicing Stoic, a philosopher. So in a sense, you could, in a loose sense, you could call him a philosopher king, but not in any exact sense, because he himself says several times throughout the book, he takes himself to task for not being a philosopher, for not being good enough at what he wants to do, for still having aspirations and a long way to go, but not actually sort of doing it. And when you look at Marcus's what he did as an emperor from a historical point of view, there's no sign of philosophy there. He's, he's just doing his job as a good emperor, you know. And Antigonus, people have occasionally tried to, to call him a philosopher king, to tar him with that same, well, that's not tarring, but anyway, to paint him in with that same color because he was, you know, he was a friend of philosophers. When he was growing up during the wilderness years, he was uh, sometimes in Athens when his father was king of Athens. And he met Zeno of Citium, the founder of Stoicism, one of the most important people in the history of philosophy ever. And it's clear they got on reasonably well. And he met other Stoics. As a young man, as a, you know, as a, as a prince especially, he would have been rounding off his education. That's what you did if you were if you were a well-off young man. You'd have your normal you know, basic level schooling as a child. And then if you wanted further education, you'd probably go to a school of rhetoric 
because you know if you're going to be a public figure you needed to be able to put your point across well and then you'd go to a philosopher for sort of you know a rounding off generalization overview of the world and how it's made up and what's important and ethics and things like that so Antigonus was almost certainly doing no more than that he wasn't becoming a philosopher himself so I think it's wrong to call him a philosopher king and when he became king I mean kings have a court and throughout history, you know, whether we're talking about medieval France and England or whether we're talking about, you know, the Hellenistic period with the Macedonian kings, they all had courts and it was part of the function of a court to have important thinkers, artists, writers. It started, I mean, well, it didn't start, but the most clear and eminent example of this is how Philip II hired Aristotle to be the tutor of Alexander the Great. So again, the fact that Antigonus had philosophers in, in his court, he invited Zeno, but Zeno turned it down. And so Perseus came as well to be Aristotle, to be the tutor of Antigonus's sons. So the fact that he had a philosopher in his court and had other philosophically inclined people in his court doesn't make him a philosopher king. It just makes him a king who's doing what kings do and inviting these people to stay in his court. Well, we are rapidly coming to the end of our interview. I've got a couple last questions. I'll ask them both at the same time, and you can feel free to answer them in any order you wish. First, what's next for Robin Waterfield? And second, who do you read? What's your favorite novel? My favorite book of all time is The Lord of the Rings. My second favorite book of all time is Patrick White's Voss. My third favorite book of all time is Jaimito von Dodera's The Demons. But I'm always reading fiction or I'm reading a biography. I just finished Ricky Lee Jones's biography because you know the singer Ricky Lee Jones? I'm afraid I don't. She's a goddess. She is. <laughs> you need to go find her. So, yeah, I'm always reading. What's next? I'm currently writing a biography of Plato, the philosopher. And you'd think, I mean, Plato's a household name. So you'd think, what? You know, this must have been done. But astonishingly, it's never been done. And again, the reason is lack of evidence. You know, we have we have his complete philosophical works. So we can say a lot about his philosophy, his thinking, and how it developed or didn't develop or whatever. But we know very little about his life. So this is a very problematic book for me to write because I want it to be an introductory. I don't want it to be a difficult book. But there is enough about his life for me to get a full book out of it. And I'm also, you know, summarizing the most important aspects of his work, as I said, hopefully in an, in an introductory way. So that's going to be out. I don't know. It's taking me much longer than I thought. <laughs> but Oxford University Press is going to publish that at some point when I can get around to finishing it. Thanks for guiding us on this tour through antiquity, and I hope you come back to uh, join us when the book on Plato was released. I'm looking forward to the invitation already, Tristan. This interview was conducted on June 14th, 2021. I'm Tristan Abbey with the Aleo Review of Books. Join us online at www.aleoreview.com. That's www.aleoreview.com. 